Hello, everyone, and welcome to our panel podcast entitled How Fast and How Low, where we'll be looking at the investment outlook for 2024. It is the 5th of December. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Remy Lambert, Seamus Lyons, and our special guest, Chris Igo of AXA Investment Managers. Markets are approaching year end in confident mood, anticipating interest rate cuts in the first half of next year. Despite Western central banks repeating their mantra of higher for longer, hopes are rising over the timing of the first cut and how quickly rates will then fall. Our discussion today will focus on whether markets have got this right. Are we really looking towards a soft economic landing, immaculate disinflation and falling rates, or could the outlook be a little more complicated than that? Seamus, could I please ask you to set the scene by giving a few highlights of financial market performance as we approach the close of the year? Hi, Lorna. I'll start by saying what a difference a month makes because November has really changed the tone of the year. So until November, it had been a pretty decent year with equity markets rising, bond yields generally being range-bound enough. But that said, we did have a period from mid-August to late October where fears of interest rates remain higher and for longer began to weigh in markets. And we saw meaningful corrections in some equity markets, but we also saw bond yields rise dramatically. For instance, the US 10-year Treasury yields at 5%, one point, the highest level since 2007. However, in late October, some soothing comments from Fed governors and, and perhaps even some positive seasonal sentiment, equity markets and bond markets enjoyed the best month of returns in November. This is the best month since November of 2020. And that was the month where they discovered the COVID vaccine and markets really began a big relief rally. So a very big month. For instance, in November, global equities rallied about 9% on average on a year-to-date basis. Now we have the US up over 20%. We have Eurozone equities up over 16 EMs lagging, emerging markets is lagging just over 5% returns. And going on to the bonnet a bit, what's quite interesting behind that is what's been driving the market this year, a certain cohort of mega cap growth stocks known as the Magnificent Seven. These have accounted for the bulk of market returns this year as their share prices have enjoyed phenomenal performance. November was also a big month for bonds. So the US 10-year had its best month since 2008. We've seen the spread asset class do very well. So on a year-to-date basis now, investment grade credit, high yield, EMD, we're all enjoying good years. Other asset classes, gold, Touched an all-time high there recently of uh, just over $2,072. It's just fallen back in the last few days, but, you know, an all-time high for gold. Bitcoin, I think it's up 150% year-to-date or something like that. So some of these other asset classes are really enjoying big years as well. So with just a few weeks of 2023 remaining, it's looking like it's going to be a pretty good year for investors. Yes, thank you. It has been quite an end to the year. And Chris, when we spoke this time last year, you were looking forward to small but positive bond returns this year after a pretty tough 2022. But performance has been better in some bond markets than in others. That's right. Thanks, Lorna. Yeah, it's been an interesting year because I think generally investors were caught out by just how strong particularly the US economy was and how that translated into the central bank's stance on interest rates. So we've kind of taken on board the message from the central banks that, as Seamus said, rates will stay higher for longer. I think it means that the Fed probably reached the peak of interest rates in July, but it's taken the markets some time to kind of come to terms with that. And for a lot of the year, it looked as though bond performance would be very disappointing. But bonds have rallied in the last few weeks. And actually, if you look across the whole fixed income space, there are some pretty impressive returns, high yield, 
for example, in the US and Europe was up between 9 and 10% in a total return context. Some of the shorter duration bond strategies where the yields are closer to the overnight policy interest rate have also provided okay returns, 4 to 5% in line with short-term cash rates. It's really been the longer duration safer in some respects from a credit point of view like government bonds. Those asset classes have performed the worst because it's been that long end of the yield curve that's had to adjust most to this view that over the medium term, interest rates are going to be higher than what we thought at the beginning of 2023. Yes, indeed. And we know that the US Fed has been front and centre, not only in the pace of its rate hikes, but also in promising these higher for longer interest rates. Ironically, are these buoyant financial markets undoing all the hard yards that the Fed has made so far? I don't really subscribe to that view. I think, you know, the key benchmark for the cost of credit is the overnight interest rate. And then, you know, when you're lending money to companies or individuals, you apply an appropriate credit spread. And I find it kind of philosophically challenging to think about financial conditions indexes and how they move around with equity prices or exchange rates or the shape of the yield curve. I think really what matters in the transmission of monetary policy is how much it costs you to borrow money. And, you know, the Fed has increased that cost of money over the last 18 months. It's at five and a half percent now. What has been surprising to some extent is the lag between those monetary policy moves and the impact on the real economy. And it seems that certainly in the US that the economy has been much more resilient than most economists would have anticipated. Perhaps it means that people haven't needed to borrow money so much because they've already got a lot of cash or that you know banks are in healthier positions so they can keep on lending and not have to fully pass on the increase in the cost of money. But I think now we are starting to see some of that impacting on credit growth, on bank lending, on the ability of companies and how to pay these higher interest rates. And that should contribute to the slowdown in the economy and ultimately to the further reduction in inflation, which is the Fed's ultimate target. It certainly is. And it's a question that's been asked many times in the past year. But are we still then expecting that the Fed will cut rates first? And if so, when? Well, that's a bit of a moving target. And it's very dependent on the data, obviously. In the past, when you look through previous cycles, it's always been very difficult to time the first cut. In fact, there was an analogy earlier this year about the Fed taking a kind of table mounting approach. Rates went up and then they stay at this kind of plateau for a long time and then come down. And the only time that's really comparable to today is in kind of the 2005 to 2007, mid part of the first decade of this century, where they kept rates on hold for 15 months. And right up until the end of that period, they were still going on about inflation being too high and so on. But as we recall, in 2008, the housing market was already showing signs of weakness and that developed into the global financial crisis. So I'm not sure that the central banks have such a great crystal ball. So I think they'll cut rates when they really need to. And that could be any time. The best bet, I think, is somewhere around the middle of the year, which is what the market is already pricing in. And whether it's the Fed first or the ECB or the Bank of England, I think is kind of speculative. My best guess is probably it will be the Fed because they were the first to hike and the US is 
more advanced in the cycle. But if we look at the Bank of England, for example, there's not a lot priced in in terms of rate cuts over 2024, certainly less than for the ECB and for the Fed. You could see a scenario where the UK economy really does weaken over the months coming and forces the Bank of England to cut rates, perhaps even sooner than the other two major central banks. Yes, interesting. But nonetheless, the first cut is undoubtedly coming ever closer. And I seem to remember saying something a bit like that this time last year. But that does explain the market's increasing optimism. Remy, what could derail these hopes and expectations? First of all, it would be the base effect of rising energy prices that could have an impact, of course, on an inflation there. The other element that it could also have is not just in terms of energy prices, it would be all around the commodities prices, which are going to have a strong effect on headline inflation that would have a significant impact in terms of inflation there. It's not a central scenario right now. What we're seeing, and I think this is commonly admitted broadly around the market, is that actually we are seeing declining either headline or core inflation dropping there in different elements, whether it's be of commodity prices, but it actually also was linked to the supply chain. Initially, the housing market and all of that is actually dropping. So we're not really seeing, for the time being, any risk on having inflation spiking up. But last week's US PCE inflation number for October didn't really give a clear direction. It is true. But what's important to see is you can sometimes have points that actually are out of line with anticipations. What's mostly important is the direction that these figures and these data are taking there. So do we need to focus on one figure or do we need to focus on the trends? I think that we should focus on the trends there and not just simplify and just focus on one number. Obviously, we've seen that by the past. Sometimes we have a number that spikes up for a variety of reasons. But what is mostly important is the trajectory that we're having in terms of reducing either inflation or PC inflation numbers there. We would stay alert on that, but I don't think that we should give more importance to that than just, you know, one single point out of the numerous points that are coming out every month. That's a good reminder. Thank you. Seamus, back to you. You reported earlier on the continued strength of the Magnificent Seven, the tech giants in the US. Could you just dive a little bit deeper into that for us? And also, crucially, how might that story develop next year? Yes. So just as a quick reminder, the US market, the S&P 500 is up about 20% so far this year. However, the vast majority of that is driven by seven mega cap growth stocks. These seven companies, they account for about 29% of the index right now by market cap, but collectively they've returned about 72% this year between them. Some are much higher. So NVIDIA is up 300 and some percent. Meta is up almost 200, I think. So, you know, some have had very good years, but collectively 72%. So if you were to actually exclude those seven and focus on the other 493 stocks in the S&P 500, the average return there is only about 8%. It just shows you the impact that they've had. Actually, this concentration at the top of the market, it's worrying for many. As I mentioned, these seven companies are almost third of the market, 29%. That's the highest level of concentration since the early 1980s. You ask, how is it likely to evolve from here? History does tend to show that the largest 10 companies in one decade is not generally the same 10 in the following decades. I mean, there's a few exceptions. Apple and Microsoft have generally been there for a while now, but for the most part, the companies do change from decade to decade. And there's reasons behind this. Typically, regulators, they begin to increase pressure on these companies or antitrust or competition authorities. You know, they look to reduce the power of these big mega companies. And we're seeing this at the moment as well. So Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, these are all facing legal challenges as we speak from various authorities in the US. But that said, most of these seven firms have very dominant global positions in their markets. 
NVIDIA, they have about 90% of the market share for graphics processing units. Those needed to train AI models. Alphabet's Google has about 80% of the global search engine market. So, you know, they're very large firms. They're not going to be very easy for competitors to shift or replace. As for maybe looking from here, you know, into next year, a lot of these big tech firms are probably going to be better positioned to weather any weaker economic activity. We probably shouldn't expect the same kind of returns from these magnificent seven as we saw this year. And also, let's remind ourselves, this year was a very good year, but last year, 2022, wasn't such a good year for these companies. We did see a lot of just recovery in their performance as well from a week 2022. In 2024, we're going to see probably more antitrust regulation. We're going to see bigger EV infrastructure rollouts. We're going to see wider adoption of generative AI. These are all themes They'll bring further clarity as to how the Magnificent Seven's endurance is really going to last. Each is going to be impacted in different ways by these themes. And competition as well between them is probably likely to increase as well as they begin to move from their kind of more core markets into each other's markets. So yeah, for sure, this is going to be another interesting theme, which will probably dominate again next year to a certain degree. Yes, it's been interesting to track how expectations for AI seem to have swung between the euphoric and the cataclysmic over the course of this year. Uh, we'll see how things develop in 2024. But to stay focused on the fundamentals now and behind all the hope and the fears, economic expectations remain fairly tough for next year. And a soft landing is still a landing, meaning growth prospects are not altogether glowing, Chris. No, that's right. If you look at the consensus economic forecasts, they are generally for below trend real GDP growth over the next at least 18 months, if not two years. And the XRIM economic forecasts for 24 and 25 are kind of consistent with that. At the same time, inflation is expected to fall further. So I think one of the things that's been a little bit underestimated is the path of nominal GDP, because it's really, we live in a nominal world and, and that's what it's important for corporate revenues and for wages and for prices. And I think we're probably facing a year where all of that is a bit weaker. I don't have high level of conviction personally whether the US goes into recession or, or not. It will flirt with recession, but the overall economic outlook is quite soft. And that means, I think, for the markets that, particularly corporates, revenue growth isn't going to be as robust as it has been in the last couple of years. So, you know, I would favour those companies that can display more consistent growth in revenues and earnings. On the fixed income side, I would prefer companies that have got better quality balance sheets because if revenue growth does slow, then it does start to expose some of those weaker balance sheets that are more leveraged at a time when if companies do need to refinance any of their debt, they'll need to be doing it at significantly higher interest rates than when that debt was originally taken out. So I think the markets can still deliver positive returns, but it's against the backdrop of a more challenging growth. Yes, fair enough. But if we move on then from the US economy and US markets, we have been increasingly positive on the Japanese equity markets this year, which has worked well for us. How do you think the story will play out next year, Remy? That's a tough call. The Japanese market has been one of the markets that has led the global markets this year. One of the elements, too, was actually linked to, first of all, the currency. The second point was they still have very low interest rates. They're not at the same level as the interest rates we're seeing in the US and in Europe. So they have a different configuration there and they've been able to post very solid returns. 
Um, Chris has touched on, you know, an element which is how do we project ourselves given the new environment in which we are, which will, at least for the next two years, we will probably have less revenues. And the Japanese economy is an economy that exports a lot and is dependent of the rest of the world there. I would say that actually going forward, we would probably be more cautious on the equity side overall, but also on the Japanese equity side. One play that we actually did all say was actually the yen, because when you talk about Japanese equities, you talk about the dollar-yen exposure, which has been roughly at around $1 for 150 yens for about a couple of months there. And we were actually playing that because as the yen depreciates, it supports the economy. But that has stopped very recently, probably in line with also what is happening with the Federal Reserve and with the dollar depreciating globally versus the other currencies. So going forward there, we will probably see, but I think that, you know, that's an assessment that we have on a regular basis. We'll probably be taking off some risk off, off our portfolio years in the beginning of the year and see how things roll out. What is important is what is our central scenario? And then once we have that view of our central scenario, and if we have the soft landing, we'll be able to pick, depending on the portfolio constructions that we want to have, the asset classes in which we'll be looking at. Just coming back, I think Japanese equities have performed very well. I just also like to point out that actually our recent overweight to US economy at the end of the year and US equities has supported us also very in an important way. This is a decision we took about a month ago. That is help us. We'll see how actually we keep that position or not going into 2024. Yes, indeed. Back to the Bank of Japan. And if they do bring a decisive end to their ultra-loose monetary policy, we could, as you say, see a turn in the fortunes of the Japanese yen. And throughout this year, the currency could be seen either as a casualty of domestic policy or simply as a casualty of the rampant US dollar. How might the dollar perform next year, Chris? Yes, that's always a tough one, forecasting exchange rates. I think just in terms of what may change, we could get slightly higher Japanese interest rates and we will probably get lower US dollar interest rates. So all things should lead to a stronger yen relative to the dollar. But a lot depends on capital flows as well. And, you know, the problem for the Japanese pension players and insurance companies is that they didn't get very much of a yield on domestic Japanese bonds. They've always been looking overseas, but they do tend to hedge the currency. And because of the rise in US interest rates, it's not been a great trade. Buying US treasuries or US credit and then hedging that back into Japanese yen has not been a profitable trade. It's been a little bit more attractive in euros, but it'd be interesting to see how they respond to any change in the relative interest rate environment. Actually, what I think will drive currencies next year is not economics, really, it's politics. We've got a number of elections, most importantly, the US election and Super Tuesday kicking off that process in March. And I think that is going to be a major influence on sentiment towards the US economy and henceforth the dollar. Yes, I was going to ask you about the market moving big themes to look out for in 2024. Is that your one, Chris? A big theme is politics. Trump is certainly in play again in the US. So that whole concept of populism in politics is very much still a force to be reckoned with. And we've seen it in the Netherlands recently as well. And populism creates policy uncertainty, which investors don't really like policy uncertainty around things like fiscal policy, so what 
governments will do with taxes and, and spending, but also around trade policy. And we saw that in Trump 1.0, you know, very expansionary fiscal policy, an aggressive kind of almost protectionist trade policy. If we get a replay of that in the US and we get similar policies elsewhere in the world, then that creates a very uncertain investment environment. And, and I think there's something like 2 billion people around the world going to the polls next year. A billion of them, admittedly, in India. But there's some big countries like Mexico and Indonesia all having elections. And in a world which has been kind of pummeled by the pandemic and inflation and higher interest rates, there has to be a risk premium somehow attached to the uncertain outcomes to some of these elections. And the same question to you, Seamus. I'll go for more in terms of inflation. Inflation has been a very positive story this year, you know, where it's been trending lower for most of the year. But I just sense that it may not be such a positive story next year, or at least in terms of markets' expectations of where it's going to go. The core inflation in the US, as we speak, is at 4%. The target rate's at 2 You know, it's got to 4% in a nice kind of smooth manner for the most part. To get to 2% in a reasonable amount of time, it may not be as straightforward as many are linked to that his interest rate may need to be higher for longer. I just think maybe I'm a bit more bearish on inflation than probably a lot of people out there. But, you know, if it doesn't go according to plan, that's going to cause volatility in market, going to be an issue, a negative issue. And, you know, generally speaking, it's been a positive story for a while now. But maybe in 2024, I just don't think it'll be such a positive story. So I think it could be a negative theme that's going to be weighing on markets throughout a lot of the year. And over to you, Remy. So I'm not going to say what's been already said. If we look at 2024, the rule is trying to identify where are the risks in the market. A lot of things that we've said have been priced there already. So the question is, will we have a soft landing in the U.S.? And if it's not the case, what happens? If we have a derailing of the U.S. economy and actually inflation is much worse than anticipated, if we can't seem to keep inflation there, those are some of the elements, you know, that actually are one of the elements that keep me awake at night. The other element is, has the Fed been too aggressive in its monetary policy and what will be the effect on growth? And therefore, what is really important for 2024 is trying to figure out in which economic context we are. And I'm talking from a very macroeconomic point of view. I'm not going to be talking about politics and geopolitics. Chris touched on that. But from a macro point of view, how are we going to land in 2024 will be an important factor. The other thing is, once we have that global vision, we will know actually where we want to actually allocate our assets to, whether it be equities and bonds, and what do we want to do within the equity space there. What really keeps me is, we've seen it, it's taken some time for central banks to actually tame this inflation. We are there. The story in the market is interest rates will be higher for longer. Yes. The debate around that is what we're seeing today is from the consensus is the Fed will be cutting its interest rates by about four times next year. We've seen some of our competitors saying it will be eight times next year. So you can see there's a big divergence in terms of interest rates cut in the U.S. going because potentially there might be a consumer issue there. So what is really important and to see how we actually are going to move from an economic environment. Just touching on what Chris said earlier, I think an element that is clear, at least for us, is that in the equity space, going for quality stock, those companies that are able to have revenue streams that are still there in consistence, that are able to manage correctly their cost bases, that are not too geared or too leveraged, both on the equity and the bond side. I think that in this environment of uncertainty, and actually we've been living for the last 15 years in an environment which is always uncertain, but let's not be overstressed about it. I mean, we've seen a numerous crisis over the periods there. I think that where we have more visibility would be going for those quality stocks, which are able in this environment to deliver us top line and bottom line earnings, but also on the bond side. Thank you for that. Seamus, anything to add there? 
as Remy said, we're pretty bullish on markets in the near term. So we thought after a difficult stretch from that August to October periods where, you know, markets did, did correct quite a bit. You have attractive valuations and the worries that really were driving markets lower to higher for longer. You know, that was fairly reflected in prices. And so it gave us more confidence to take a positive view of markets. Also, if you combine it with typically you get a positive seasonal sentiment, you know, as we approach year end allowed us to take a bit more risk in portfolios. And so that's what we've done. We've gone over moderate overweight in equities about a month or so ago. We are very much overweight U.S. equities. So at a point in time, we'll see if we take that off the table to become a bit more, you know, neutral there. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.